for listening to the Police One podcast, Policing Matters. I'm Doug Wiley, Editor-in-Chief of Police One. Hi, this is Jim Dudley. Jim, um, one of the more, um, how shall I say, controversial uh, things that's come up in the last several years is agencies putting together no pursuit policies or highly restrictive policies, so restrictive, in fact, that you know they've become either rare or non-existent in some uh, jurisdictions. And those places, um, you know, if you have someone who's exceeding the speed limit, has done some other traffic violation, or is you know, known to have committed a crime um, and is spotted by patrol, um, they're going to go try and apprehend them. They're handcuffed. They can't, they can't do their jobs. And I think that a lot of line officers get frustrated about that. Well, I think rightfully so. If you look at statistics and the things most harmful to law enforcement officers, uh, clearly uh, traffic collisions are right up there with, with shootings, usually number two. And over a 10-year period from um, the Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund, uh, over 400, 414 um, law enforcement officers killed in the line of duty due to traffic-related uh, accidents. And I would imagine that mo- most of those are from vehicle pursuits. So the, the idea that, that it's a high-risk, high-gain maneuver during your police career to engage in a pro- police pursuit, certainly we should have a good understanding of uh, when we should do them and what we should do when we do them. Yeah, no. According to an FBI report from 2010, you know, this is some dated uh, information, but I think it probably is uh, about the same today. Um, there was one line of duty death uh, due to a vehicle pursuit, not just a single vehicle collision, which are the, those are the ones that drive us all completely batty because they're just not necessary. Um, you know, but if you're engaged in a pursuit of a, of a felon who's you know done some horrific crime, um, one in every 11 days uh, during that time period was a, a line of duty death, and you know, obviously just one line of duty death in a year or more uh, due to a vehicle pursuit is is I can't say unacceptable because it's an accepted risk of the job, but it just it's just tragic. Um, one of the things that concerns me, particularly about the the, the what they call the no go zones. Um, pursuit policies have been set up in some places where, you know, if the if the subject gets too close to an area where there's a school, discontinue. If the, you get too close to, you know, other certain um, geographic locations, discontinue. Um, I think we're creating places, safe havens, you know, where criminals figure this stuff out very, very quickly. Word spreads. And, you know, if suddenly, you know, they, they know if I start aiming toward the school, they're going to let me go. You know, doesn't that create a, a, an issue? Well, well, certainly, but uh, I think the officer in in the pursuit themselves have a high degree of vulnerability. Liability, of course, is way up there. Um, they've got so many things on their mind when they're in pursuit. They've got to call out over dispatch their unit, their direction of travel, their speed, the license plate, description of the vehicle, what the offense is, uh, where they're headed, what surface conditions are like, what weather's like, things like that. And so, so there are a million things going through their mind. And, and this occurred to me when I was uh, in a chase as a, a police commander. Um, I actually witnessed a, what, what turned out to be a strong arm robbery where um, the victim was thrown to the ground and the individual jumped in the car and drove off. So it wasn't like an unknown situation. I knew it was for a robbery and a mm-hmm. stolen vehicle. So I get in pursuit of this uh, vehicle, and this was only a couple of years back. So I do all those things. I announce all that, and I talk about my speed, and I'm considering uh, whether or not I should 
con- continue the pursuit. And 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 our uh, rules in San Francisco said that a supervisor is supposed to get on. So either a deputy chief or the chief of police are going to have to jump on the radio and either say keep going or call off the chase. And so that the, the likelihood of that happening was <laughs> extremely low. So I continue the pursuit. Funny, funny thing about this, this one particular pursuit was uh, every time the individual went to make a turn or a, or a circle turn, he would open the driver's door and I would slow down uh, and reduce speed, reducing the or increasing the area between our vehicles because I was afraid the suspect would jump out and I'd run him over. Uh, turns out at the end of the chase that uh, he abandoned the car, ran off on foot. We caught him. But uh, when we go back and look into the uh, vehicle, um, notice that the the club, the the steering wheel restrictor club, was on the steering wheel. So every time he had to make a turn, he had to open the door to make the maneuver. So for those of you who think the the club uh, or any sort of uh, steering wheel restrictor is the answer, I have news for you. It's <laughs> not. Uh, but again, I, I mean the the liabilities. Um, I've seen uh, deaths. I've seen third-party deaths as a result of traffic pursuits. It's not pretty. And it's usually, I mean, do the balancing act. And I can't think, uh, you know, short of multiple murders, when it would be worth um, driving someone through a neighborhood, past a school, through areas where where we now expose the community. So um, in one particular case, a full family of four uh, was killed after a vehicle collision where uh, two robbery suspects uh, T-boned this car at an intersection going probably 70 miles an hour. And what a horrific scene. And if you if you look back to uh, the robbery, which turned out to be a purse snatching, is that equal to four civilians who had through no fault of their own, been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, you know, and it's it's great and interesting that you use the word balance because I actually had that in my notes of, you know, something I wanted to make sure that I included in today's podcast. You know, that it really is a balance between the public safety of um, allowing someone who's a criminal offender of whatever description to go free to potentially commit, you know, another, you know, act of criminal violence or what have you. And the balance of the public safety of ensuring that that unskilled and untrained uh, driver, you know, I mean, law enforcement officers are are pretty well trained in in, in, in emergency driving for the most part. Um, but we're talking about someone who potentially is a DUI at the time and maybe blowing a deuce behind the wheel right now, um, and you're you're you know essentially forcing them through city or or, or rural streets. Um, to, 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 to commit havoc, to, to create, you know, mayhem on the streets. So it's that, it's, and it really, to me, it comes down to the officer's discretion, you know, and it comes down to the line level officer making the right decision about the weather. Um, my dad, long ago when he was teaching me to drive, uh, taught me oh, in the summertime, and then of course in New York, it gets to be snowy and icy. So he, he instilled in me, drive the conditions, not the way you've been conditioned. And, you know, so you have to make those critical judgments. And, you know, it's just like every day cops on the street are making those split second um, command level decisions at the line level officer level. Sure. And, and your dad had some good advice. Uh, if you look at, at the training that's out there and it all goes back to training, really. But but in a large part, it's the discretion of the officer, just like you said. Uh, I, I ran up the uh, a couple of policies, the um, International Association of Chiefs of Police uh, driving pursuit policy is 
you know, an unmanageable 58 pages, California Post, uh, pursuit driving um, uh, policy uh, sample was 56 pages. So mm-hmm. believe me, page 4950, etc., is not on the mind of the officer doing the pursuit. I think it is good to build into mm-hmm. supervisors and somebody objective out of the pursuing vehicle to maybe make the call, definitely to make the call. I shouldn't even say maybe, but that, that if a supervisor sitting um, a mile away from the chase or uh, back at an office can can weigh in their mind uh, what you're chasing for, um, where you're headed, and when the risk gets to be higher than the gain, then call off the pursuit. Yeah, and and that you know speaks to the fact that you know when you're in a pursuit, it's a, it's an emotionally charged thing. Um, you know, you get competitive, you get like, you know, your heart goes crazy. Your adrenaline's you, pumping. Right. And so it does, it does make sense to have someone, you know, who's, who's detached emotionally and physically from the scene and, and, and is, you know, has that level head, you know, has that ability to make those decisions. Now, what I'm also saying though, is, you know, if we, if we do a good enough job in training, and I think, you know, and we'll talk about this some other time, um, that, that the training has to be frequent enough for not just the skills, right? I mean, driving is one of the things that cops do pretty much all day. Mm-hmm. Um, but evoc type of, of driving is not something that they get a chance to do all that often. And when they do, it's for the game and not for practice. So that needs to, get, to be addressed. And then and the other thing is that the decision-making uh, training, and that's, that's kind of probably the most important one, deciding whether to, to discontinue, deciding whether to even pursue in the first place sure. you know those decisions um, you know obviously have long-reaching far-reaching consequences absolutely and when we talk about um, tactics so say you do you do have um, shots fired shooting from a vehicle you're going to continue oh, yeah. the pursuit no doubt. Um, there there are some maneuvers that may work out for you um, our highway patrol in California uses a great serpentine maneuver on our freeways uh, a traffic break mm-hmm. that essentially bunches up civilian vehicles before the, in anticipation yeah, it's, it's of it's a rolling roadblock. Rolling roadblock. Yeah. Um, but then you've got to determine what's going to happen when the, the felony vehicle catches up to the roadblock. Um, LA uh, used to love, I don't know if they still do it, the pit maneuver where they actually strike a vehicle to knock them off balance, get them spinning. Um, the spike strips were heralded as the next best thing, but unfortunately, um, five or more officers have been killed uh, directly attributed to uh, throwing out spike strips. Uh, we had one of our own uh, killed here in San Francisco. Um, Officer Burko was deploying the spike strips and was killed um, by the suspect in mm. his vehicle. So um, it is not the end all or, or the the technology that's going to save us. I think there's some things on the horizon, but uh, I think for now, discretion is indeed the better part of valor. Yeah. And, you know, just to, to, to tie it all up, you know, the discretionary piece, you know, at the command level as well as the line level, the officer in the car, and then, of course, the commander or, you know, whomever else, lieutenant back at the, the police station, you know, making the decision, um, both equally in, in terms of my looking at the world, they have an equally vested interest in making the right decision, of course. But, you know, to your point about technology, there are a couple of things that, you know, spike strips, we both agree, I think, are just really dangerous and can really only be deployed in very, very unique instances when to be done safely. 
But there is a device that's come out um, recently, relatively recently. It's called Mobile Strike. And it, it effectively has a spike strip on the front bumper of the patrol car. And if you can get parallel with one of the tires, um, it, it just it's an armature that sort of swings out and you get the tires that way. Oh, I saw You're, that. They, they use that in Ben-Hur. Yeah, is that right? <laughs> the, it, it effectively is the same thing. And the, um, um, you know... You're close enough to perform a pit, but you don't have to make contact with the with the other car. Right. You, know, you don't create that jeopardy for the police officer. Um, and then the last one that I'd seen, and I, I've seen this work, it's called Star Chase, and it's 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 a it's a projectile that's mounted to the front of the patrol car. And although I don't know how it's fired, it could be pneumatic or something else. It shoots this little object onto the the the, the fleeing vehicle. It's a GPS marker. None, all you have to do is kind of sit back and wait till the offender or whatever your, your driver there parks, mm-hmm. and then go get them. Um, so, and and I know because I've talked with some folks at that company that that has been a successful technology thing. Now, of course, you know the dream, of course, is to have an electronic pulse, you know, an EMP gun on the front of the squad car and just knock out all the electronics in the car, and the thing comes immediately to a halt. Now, Shut them down. I don't, I don't know if we're there yet, but you know, I think we can be confident that someone's thinking someone really smart in silicon valley or someplace else is thinking about how to make that work yeah absolutely all right well uh we'll definitely be talking about pursuits again and um jim thanks a lot for this really excellent podcast (laughs) you bet Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug. Hey, welcome back. I'm Jim Dudley. So, Jim, we've talked before, and we'll probably talk again, about a really important subject, and that's police pursuits. You know, it's one of the most dangerous activities um, a law enforcement officer can do. Um, most of the driving that a typical patrol officer does is going to be at speed limit or just thereabouts near it. Um, and when you get into particularly a high-speed urban or you know even a, a rural but a, a you know suburban type of environment where you're you're dealing with making turns on blocks and you know kids in the intersections and you know a variety of other uh, factors you know and not to, to not to demean in any way freeway pursuits because they're just as darn dangerous sure. um, but you have you know you, you have officers doing something that they they don't typically do and I don't think that they typically train enough in uh, you know, we advocate for 50 rounds uh, a month, you know, of on your own time and on your own dime firearms training in order to be truly proficient in a gunfight. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a good, that's kind of a minimum as opposed to just going out and qualifying. But, you know, what we have is oftentimes officers doing EVOC training in, in the academy and then getting simulation training and other stuff um, thereafter. But not enough times going back out on the EVOC course and, and having the opportunity to, to pr- perform those skills and decision making um, you know, kind of go, no go, pursue, no pursue type of decisions. And then we're asking them to do it live right now, right from Jump Street. Mm-hmm. You know, what are some of the ways in which we can ensure that those pursuits are ended safely and successfully? What are some tactics that you can you know, use? Well, even, even before we get to tactics, I would say that um, I hear officers talk all the time about the unknown. Uh, they, they start a traffic violation with a non-compliance to yield uh, they won't pull over for you so they keep going and and then in the officer's mind is that they're hiding something else right so but if we go back to use of force and talked about objective reasonableness Mm -hmm. you if you cannot articulate if you cannot articulate why you are continuing a high-speed pursuit through neighborhoods for 
uh, minor traffic violations. Um, number one, I hope a supervisor calls you off the GM and says, okay, that's the end of that pursuit. Um, but you know, I have mixed, mixed feelings about it. Um, we've also had um, vehicles wanted for shoplifting, um, in particular one near and dear to my heart. Uh, one of my mentors, Sergeant John McCauley in San Francisco was killed by uh, a vehicle, the driver of a vehicle that he stopped that had been in a shoplifting incident uh, a couple hours before. So you never know, um, but you really need to have the, um, you need to be able to articulate the reasons why you're going to continue. And if you do, and you have good reasons, then um, like we talked about in the other podcast, I think the, the traffic break is a great idea to get other vehicles to slow down in front of you. Um, San Francisco's a small town, a big city in a small town, uh, over 850,000 population and a 49 square mile piece of property. So our vehicle pursuits tend to be short, but um, it doesn't minimize the danger. So uh, a strategy that we often employed as, as patrol officers was to do essentially a slow pursuit. And, and I know Oregon, uh, there's a a small uh, community in Oregon that that um, promotes the slow pursuit where um, you essentially try to maintain eye contact with the vehicle, uh, flood other uh, resources to you, other law enforcement officers to your area in the hopes that you can pin the violator down through natural or created obstacles. Yeah, just kind of create a, a box, create right. a perimeter of cars and then constrict that smaller and smaller and smaller until basically you get, you know, just a bunch of cars around Yeah, and if you're in a city that employs <clears throat> a air support, all the better. Um, right. You talked about a, a magnetic device, GPS, that would just essentially track the vehicle. Well, you'll get the vehicle, but chances are these people are bailing out and running and you're not going to get them unless you, you've seen them and... Uh, dig up a warrant uh, for an arrest after the fact. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're going to get into the mist, but, um, and, and that's the thing about, you know, to call back to our earlier segment, you know, it's sometimes the no pursuit or restrictive pursuit policies are, are, can become prog- problematic. I mean, if you've got someone who's truly a dangerous, violent criminal and they're the per, if they're the person in the car and you know it, um, you know, it's, it's really difficult to justify calling off a pursuit. Sometimes it's just, you got to just be as, careful as you bloody can be sure and you know um and just you know revert back to your training and again to your decision making if, if things get really hairy um you know then you know then you obviously have to make the tough call to to call it off sure and i, and I think it, it's it unless you do have that heinous criminal on the lam um you have essentially high risk low gain um i know a lot of um jurisdictions where a uh, felony stolen car turns out to be misdemeanor stolen car when it comes to prosecution. So that's that's really a low gain. Um, if you if you're in pursuit of a DUI uh, offender who's got multiple DUIs under their belt and they're trying to avoid the one that's going to send them to prison, um, that's going to be really dangerous too. So as far as pit maneuvers or things like that, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, spike strips, I would I would hold out for just the best possible conditions you could get. And then uh, I would say never ever um, shoot at a moving vehicle. Um, I don't know of any uh, agencies that have a policy that say it's okay to shoot at a moving vehicle, but I think you, you have to go under the basic premise that a 80 mile an hour uh, vehicle coming at you 
uh, once you shoot the driver and disable them, now you have a unmanned unmanned it, ballistic missile is what you've got. Yeah, eighty yeah. miles an hour, and now you don't know where they're going. So, I think there's there's a real hazard in shooting uh, the driver. You know, um, one of the tips that I remember reading a while back was um, just to bear in mind that um, don't assume that your sirens are going to be all that effective, particularly above 50 miles an hour. I mean, if you're going through any area, um, the time reaction gap for a civilian on the street, a pedestrian, for example, or another driver, they are not going to be able to process at a certain at a certain um, uh, distance the fact that a siren is happening, that it's that it's approaching, it's nearby, and what you're doing is you're essentially breaking the sound barrier. You're driving faster than the effective sure. range of your siren to you know get the civilian, the citizen to figure out they got to do something. Like I, I got to get out of the way. Well, I know the scenario you're talking about all too well, and 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 don't forget the blue on blue situations. Right. Uh, in 1986, going to a robbery. Um, uh, on the other side of our district, uh, my partner and I are flying up code three with all the green lights in our favor when I look over and see another um, black and white uh, run their red light and, and crash into my door uh, probably 45, 50 miles an hour. So I had the concussion to prove that that is a bad idea. Um, green lights don't mean you have a, a free, free pass at, at driving as fast as you want. Red lights and siren don't give you that um, free pass either. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the, the, the final things that I, I think I, I want to kind of leave, um, and I'm sure you have more too, is that I want to remember to say, you know, remember to check your mindset. You know, it's not about winning. It's about making sure the public is safe. And, you know, I think that sometimes because, you know, all of the cops that I know anyway, pretty type A competitive folks. Um, for the most part. And, you know, when something like that begins, when the pers- when you make the decision to pursue, uh, remember the reason for it and not, you know, I'm going to win this thing. I'm going to get this guy as a kind of a victory. It's the motivation has to remain pure throughout because your adrenaline goes crazy. You know, you, you know, the lights and sirens are on. Maybe it's your first, second or third, but however many pursuits you've been in, you know, it's got to be um, it's got to be about public safety and not about being the one who comes out on top. Because, you know, the, 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 the violator has no rules whatsoever. They can do anything they want. But, you know, we have to remember that there are certain policies, there are certain procedures, and you already articulated it. If you can't articulate the objective reasonableness of what you're doing, um, it can't be, I wanted to get that guy. Sure. You know? And I think, I think the bottom line for me is to go back thoroughly know your own policy if you doubt in any way your own ability or even if you just want to sharpen your skills volunteer to go to evoc training go to go volunteer to jump behind the wheel and and take um, eight hours of driving and 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 tune up your skills yeah and i i I would even take that i would up the ante on that one one more I, i would like to see across the united states more agencies requiring recurring training on the course, not just in the simulator. I think those things can be tied together in a very nice tight mesh, the way in the same way we do it on the firearms range. We t- tie the square range to the simulator all the time, and we're doing it more. Um, I think that in order to you know focus the decision-making stuff in the simulator and then continue to hone those skills at speed with realistic scenarios where you, you, know, you have a car you're pursuing as opposed to just driving around the course by yourself. You mentioned it before, other other cars getting into the mix. There are safe ways of doing that. And I think it's one of the things that agencies should look at as, you know, once every three, five, whatever years, 
Um, and certainly for the officer that's more likely to get into a pursuit, you know, someone who works traffic, for example, um, you know, that's, that's, I mean, obviously the, our motor officers are training like that all the time. Sure. Yeah. Good, good points. All right. Well, we'll be back with another segment of the Police One Policing Matters podcast in just a little bit. Thank you for clicking and thank you for listening to Policing Matters, the Police One Podcast. I'm Doug. Hi, I'm Jim Dudley. Welcome back. So one of the things that I want to inquire with you, Jim, about in, you know, this is just an open question, is do you think that an officer, average officer on the street today would get a call for an out-of-control child and be able to quickly assess whether or not that child was just a result of bad parenting or someone who is an autism spectrum disorder or ASD subject? Uh, that's a tough one. I'm not sure what the training is today towards um, ADS, but um, I would say off the bat, no. They, they wouldn't really have the, t- the tools to recognize it and deal with it. Um, it was a rhetorical question. You're right. Um, I, I, and I've, I've been writing about this since 2009. I've written at least four articles on the topic. I've taken countless hours of training on it um, so that I can disseminate this information. I think that the, the, the fact of the matter is is that even today, um, we're woefully undertrained uh, in terms of identifying children or, or adults with autism spectrum disorder. And there's a variety of different um, uh, types of afflictions that fall under that umbrella. Um, but many, they largely have somewhat of the same um, types of um, um, manifestations, a lot of the same behaviors. So we can talk about it broadly under the ASD um, subject uh, and police officer contact. The, the reason I, I, I get so passionate about this is that um, ASD subjects are far more likely to um, be victimized, be bullied, be denied services than the average person. They're far less likely to intentionally commit any type of crime. The compassion among ASD subjects um, is, is astounding. And so while an ASD subject might go out of control, for example, in a public place and therefore get um, you know, the, assist, the, the, the attention of law enforcement, um, more often than not, the, the contact with an ASD subject is that of uh, either a victim or just kind of interaction on the street. And, and, and it's, it's happening more and more these days. Sure. Well, when, when we first talked about it, um, it really uh, it took me a while to, to think back of any interactions I've had with anyone with ASD. And I have had some over the years, um, often in settings where I knew the interaction was going to take place, uh, not a, a chance interaction on the street. But um, in doing a little research on AutismSociety.org, um, they go back to the Center for Disease Control in 2014 to say that uh, one in 68 births um, show a prevalence of ASD. Um, the prevalence increased 6 to 15% over the years from 2000 when it was 1 in 150 births to 2010 when it, when it is now 1 in 68. So autism is the fastest growing developmental disability. So for police officers to, to notice the rise, it's, 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 a good, uh, it's a good pickup because it is happening. Yeah, and you know, um, not to toot my own horn, but you know, the, the article resources that we're going to put on the website adjacent with this podcast, 
um, can be very helpful. I mean, if you're not getting formal training and how to identify some of these things, um, we'll go through some of the, uh, the traits to look for here in a minute. Um, but I do encourage folks to, when they have an opportunity, click on a couple of those links. They have in those articles links to other resources um, because with this thing on the rise, um, you know, officers do need to be aware of the fact that there's a couple of issues related to ASD subjects. And one of the, one of the which is, is really quite simple. Um, autism spectrum disorder individuals respond very, very differently. Their sensory processing is different from you and me. And they respond differently to things like lights and sirens. They respond differently to um, command presence. You know, command voice can ter utterly terrify and, and turn a bad situation into a worse situation. Um, so you have to, you know, be able to adjust your your command presence to the to the situation. Um, going hands on with an ASD subject can be a really weird experience. Like they may want to hug you. Like they, they have different types of responses to things like that. So if you have to educate yourself about some of those things. Um, one of the things that you can look for in an ASD subject, or several really, um, they have somewhat restricted behaviors at times. Um, they do things like repetition of phrases, repetition of movements. Um, they like oftentimes rocking themselves in place or spinning in place. That's a very common one to look for, especially in children. Um, they often have very intense interests. Like for example, an officer might find that the ASD subject wants to touch your badge or your star because it's shiny and bright. Um, or touch your gun because it's unusual and different, never seen before. Um, they also have intense interests, um, things like, you know, they, they might be particularly into marbles or other certain types of objects. Um, so when you come upon a subject that's kind of doing some of these behavioral things, also you may find subjects that are completely non-communicative. They can't or won't speak. So if you're questioning one, you have to that's kind of what we call a clue. You know, if they're not talking back to you and they're doing some of these other behaviors, you might need to find someone who has some legitimate ASD, you know, kind of um, um, training to begin to try and coax out of that person, whether they're a witness or a victim. Um, you know, what happened to you? What, what, what's, why, how did, who hurt you and how? Um, and although they are less, less, less likely to commit a crime, as I said, they're more likely to be victimized. So we have to have that interaction, interaction capability. Um, you know, get trained up a little bit and, and do, do a little bit of research. Um, one of the biggest dangers with ASD subjects, and um, this is where police, I think, most oftentimes will get involved with one. ASD subjects, especially under the age of 17, are very, very likely, more than half of them, tend to run away. Um, kids who have, an, uh, particularly the um, more severely afflicted ASD subjects, um, they're very, very drawn to water. So one piece of advice that I would, I would give to anyone listening is if you know you're in search of an ASD subject who's gone missing, dispatch people to the bodies of water in your area because they might, if they're not there already, they might likely show up if they know it's there. ASD subjects under the age of 17 have a high incidence of drowning while, when they're missing. That having been said, and no one understands why precisely, but ASD subjects are very likely to survive a long time in a wilderness environment. They go off into the woods, and many have been found to have survived for four days and been found, four or five days and been found, hmm. um, well beyond what is kind of the typical um, non-ASD individual. Um, so again, when you're doing your search in the woodland area, you know, be patient because you may come upon someone who's still alive. Um, one of the last things that I think that is, is worth kind of trying to capture here and we can't do in a short podcast all of what you need to know on asd subjects but um 
the the some agencies have been very successful at reaching out to people in their community and saying, if you have an ASD subject who lives in your home, um, or you know of this person in your residence, give us a call. Let us know that they're there. So we know upon getting a call, whether it's a disturbance or a missing person, we know what we're looking at right away. Because mm-hmm. speed in these kinds of things is essential, um, and the knowledge. You know, just having the understanding of. I know now what I'm going to come into. I'm going to come into someone who doesn't communicate like me, who can't see or hear or think like me, and so you have to adjust your game a little bit. Um, and there, there have been several agencies that have these registries, and it goes into your, you know, whatever your CAD or whatever else. Um, and you know, because April is Autism Awareness Month, this is a good month to begin to think about, you know, how you do that outreach. If that's Facebook, if that's Nextdoor, if that's whatever means that you have, if you can get on television with your local news, um, people who care for ASD subjects would be or have been shown to be very, very likely to come forward and say, "This is going to help me. It's going to help protect my loved one." Um, so, and you know, although you know, a- April is the Autism Awareness Month, but this is a year-long effort. So, I would encourage, you know, if you're listening to this in in December of 2016 or you know January of 2017, and you're just hearing this for the first time, do it now because the quicker you can get your resources and your, your knowledge base about ASD subjects kind of up to speed, get your officers trained up at least, get, having read some resources on interactions and things like that. Um, you know, the population of uh, ASD subjects is going up, so this challenge for law enforcement is going to continue to persist and per- pro- probably, uh, or at least perhaps, persist more frequently. So it's just another one of those things that it's just going to require, and it doesn't require any special tools. Hmm. You know, I mean, you know, once you have the understanding, it's just another ability. It's another kind of thing in your mental toolkit um, and your, your, your ability to, you know, bring interactions with ASD subjects to a safe and successful conclusion. Good information. And we'll be back another time with the Police One Policing Matters podcast.